it's Ecclesiastes chapter 9, so flick that open on your phones or in your books. To be or not to be, Hamlet ponders, that's the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing them, end them. So do you put up with all the slings and arrows of life, sickness, suffering, pain, depression, or do you fight against that? Do you, in other words, kill yourself? To die, to sleep, no more. And by sleep, to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance, to dream. But then Hamlet goes, that's the rub. Because once I die, in that sleep of death, what dreams may come? When we've shuffled off this mortal coil, that must give us pause. Death. What do we make of death? Or again, I read a a book just recently called Metroland, which is a great little read. It's The first bit of it, anyway, is based around an English schoolboy in the 1960s. And he, again, ponders what it's like to first ponder the big D, as he calls it, um, and shares. I don't know if you remember those experiences when you were little and, uh, you know, were growing up through high school and began to really feel the weight of death. He says, there was very few things I wouldn't tell my best friend Tony. Well, actually, there was only one thing I wouldn't confide in him, and that was the thing about dying. I don't claim any originality for the timing or the location of my bouts of fear. It was when I was in bed, unable to sleep. But I do claim one touch of particularity. The fear of death would always arrive on me while I was lying on my right side, (laughs) uh, facing towards the window and the distant railway line. It would never come when I was on my left side, facing the the bookshelves in my house. And once started, the fear could not be diminished by turning over. I had to play it out to the end. To this day, I'd rather sleep on my left side. What was the fear like, he says? A sudden rising terror which takes you unawares, a surging need to scream which the house rules forbid. So that you lie there with your mouth open in trembling panic, total wakefulness which takes hour or so to subside. And all of this as uh, the background to and symptom of a central image, part visual, part intellectual of non-existence. A picture of endlessly retreating stars. A sensation of total aloneness, aloneness within your pyjamaed, shaking body. A realisation of time, always with a capital T, going on without you forever and ever and ever. And a persecuted sense of having been trapped into the present situation by person or persons unknown. He says that, you know, sometimes people say, I don't care about uh, being dead. It's just the dying I can't stand the thought of. He says, I don't agree. Nothing seems clearer to me in my nocturnal terrors than that death bore no resemblance to sleep. I wouldn't mind dying at all, he says, as long as I didn't end up dead at the end of it. Death. Death. Ecclesiastes 9 raises this very question. Death. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 2. Everything is the same for everyone. There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked, for the good and the bad, for the clean and the unclean, for the one who sacrifices and the one who doesn't sacrifice, as it is for the good, so it is for the sinner, as for the one who takes an oath, so it is for the one who fears an oath. This is an evil that is done under the sun. There is one fate for everyone. In addition, the hearts of people are full of evil and madness. In their hearts while they live and after, they go to the dead. Where does death come from? 
We know from God's word that death is not natural, it's not normal, it's not healthy, it's not part of the grand circle of life, not for people. No, human death is a great tragedy. It's the day you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you turn away from God, that's the day you die. It's an enemy. It's a bad thing. It's an unnatural thing. It's a tragedy. The day you eat of it, you'll die, God said to Adam and Eve. But of course, the day they eat it, they didn't die, did they? They carried on living and there were the animals died, didn't they? Make the clothes. <laughs> um, and that's because as, as we unpack the rest of the Bible, it's right to say really you've got three dimensions to death or aspects to death in the Bible. You have the spiritual death first, which is on that day they did die in the sense that they're dead to God. You're dead to me now, we say to people, if we have a falling out. Well, on that day, they were dead to God, banished east of Eden, alienated from him. Spiritual death, secondly, physical death, for God did say, you will return to the dust. From the dust you were taken, to dust you will return. You will die. We become mortal. We become decaying. But then beyond that physical death, we're separated from God, we face the fate of physical death, but then beyond that is the final evaluation before God, where all things will be weighed up, and where those who are wrong with God will be banished from God under the wrath of God for all eternity, the eternal death, the second death. And here in Ecclesiastes, we have the most sustained meditation upon death, this book in the whole Old Testament, particularly focusing on physical death, but always seeping over into those other two categories. The universality of death. First, he says, you see, all is in God's hands. Verse 1, I took this all to heart and explained it all. The righteous and the wise and their works are in God's hands. All is in God's hands. It's a lovely truth, actually, to begin with, isn't it? All is in God's hands. So back in chapter 3, he says the same thing, that God's plans will be worked out. He has a time for everything. Nothing can be added to God's plans. Nothing can be subtracted from God's plans. He has his plans. He has his times. He has his ways. And actually, Ecclesiastes, one of its bits of advice is to embrace that as a good thing. It's a good gift from God to receive your lot to know the times, to accept your place. God controls all. God isn't over all. There is something above the sun that controls all under the sun that gives it meaning and all is beautiful in its time. God is sovereign. Not a sparrow falls to the ground, not a hair drops from the head without God knowing. God controls all and we as Christians take great comfort that all is in God's hands. And so we say, if God wills. Not as fatalists. Well, God will will anyway, so... But rather, great delight to go, actually, the loving God and Father rules all. And it's great that if what he wills is other than what I will, let God's will be done. All is in God's hands, verse 1 says, but... (laughs) we don't know, verse 1 finishes, we don't know whether to expect love or hate. Everything lies ahead of us. We know all is in God's hands, but that doesn't mean we know what God will do. 
We know that God's will be done, but we don't necessarily know exactly the details of what God's will will be. All is in God's hands, but we don't know. And so look at verse 11 there. Again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong or the bread to the wise or riches to the discerning or favour to the um, skillful. Rather, time and chance happen to them all. For man certainly doesn't know his time. Like a fish caught in a cruel net or like birds caught in a trap, so people are trapped in evil times as it suddenly falls upon them. You see, we can't assume, can we, that because God has a plan, that we will always be able to discern it. We can't assume that. It's presumptuous to presume that, that we can always know the details of the channels of God's will. If it's God's will, we pray. Rightly so. What's your life, James, rebukes us? We're just a mist. We're just the, the fog in the morning that we hope there'll be a sun that will get rid of it by the middle of the day. We're, we're, just a, we're here today, we're gone tomorrow. What we should say is not just, yeah, actually uh, what we're going to do is we're going to train up some new leaders for next year and then we'll have them all in place and that's all good for next year. And then what I'm thinking of doing is scaling back and working one day less a week so I can be involved in this. And, and then we're going to put an extension on the house, actually. We're saving up for that in a couple of years. We'll do that. And, and hopefully we'll, um, you know, when the kids are in high school, we'll, um, we'll go to Europe as well, actually. We're, we're hoping for that, so... Um, good uh no james says we don't know you might you hope you plan and then you could just be completely sideswiped by cruel net we've got to learn from job don't we another partner book in uh in the wisdom literature where where job says it's it, god gives god takes God be praised. And it's been fun preaching through Ecclesiastes with the students at uh, the uni fellowship this semester. So sorry to you guys, you've already had 17 sermons on Ecclesiastes. Here's a little bit more. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, some of the students have struggled with this book because they've said, this is all just one massive thought experiment uh, to show atheists why they need to become Christians. And so it's all saying, this is bad, this is awful, this is depressing, but luckily you believe in Jesus and everything's happy and bright all the time. you know. Um, but we need to receive Ecclesiastes not simply as a book that shows us the bleakness of life merely under the sun, merely before the grave. But we need to also receive Ecclesiastes as a book of wisdom, even for us Christians who know the one above the sun, who know the one who broke through the grave, but who still now are living our lives in decaying bodies, fixing our eyes on what is unseen, unequal to the task set before us, uncertain of the outcomes we pursue, that actually Ecclesiastes speaks to us too. We can't know everything. We know Christ has risen from the dead. We know Christ is coming back, but we don't know the details. Outwardly, we're wasting away. There are times of great trouble and anxiety. All is in God's hands. But we don't know the details. But good news, there is something we do know, and that is that we're all going to die, verse 2. 
Everything is the same for everyone. There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked, for the good and the bad, for the clean and the unclean, for the one who sacrifices and the one who doesn't sacrifice, as it is for the good, so it is for the sinner, as for the one who takes an oath, so for the one who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. There is one fate for everyone. In addition, the hearts of people are full of evil and badness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. No escape, no wriggle room. Whether you're good or bad, whether you're rich or powerful, whether you're married or single, smart or dumb, cute or plain, fit or fat, we're all going to die. As Tom Waits sings, what does it matter? A dream of love, a dream of lies. We're all going to be in the same place when we die. Your spirit don't leave knowing your face or your name and the wind through your bones is all that remains. We're all going to be just dirt in the ground. Or again, in his um, little short story, The Wall, Jean-Paul Sartre tells the story of some people who are condemned to death. They're waiting in their cell, facing the firing squad in the morning. And in this little short story, he describes what that would feel like to stand quite consciously right on the brink of, of the grave. And describing the thoughts going through this character's mind, he says, if someone had told me tomorrow I could go home quietly and they'd leave my life whole, it would have left me cold. Several hours or several years of waiting is all the same when you have lost the illusion of being eternal. We as Christians... As far as this life goes, should be people who have lost the illusion of being eternal. That we're not hiding from the, the fear of death, the reality of death, pretending that we're immortal. But we should be people who have embraced the reality that we are, in these bodies, in this life, mortal, fragile, delicate, vulnerable just dust and ashes. Have we embraced that? Have we embraced that our ministries are preparing people for death? If we embrace it, surely one truth is that we won't fear those who are rich and powerful with mighty cufflinks, gorgeous ball gowns, shoes and legs and corner offices. Won't fear them and, and seek to somehow please them and bend to them and worry about what they think of us or why we're not noticed the way they are. We won't worry about these things, will we, as Christians? We don't need to worry about these things because we can see them as, as we see ourselves, as we see cows and cats and fleas. We're all the same, aren't we? That's the advice of Psalm 49, more or less, isn't it? The rich don't fear the rich. The rich are like the cows, they both die. <laughs> the powerful, don't sell your soul to the powerful. The powerful are just like mittens. They're going to die. Why fear mere mortals? <laughs> or maybe we fancy that we are the powerful, you know, and uh, we fancy that we are a little bit fearful, a bit important, a bit somebody. We're going to die. 
and all our power, all our money, all our good deeds even, all our ministry achievements, all what we've done for God, all the prayers we've prayed, these things don't ransom our lives from the grave. These things don't make us right with our maker. All is in God's hands. We don't know the details, but one thing we do know, we are all going to die. And this is evil, Ecclesiastes says. It's an evil thing, verse 3, that is done under the sun. There is one fate for everyone. In addition, the hearts of people are full of evil and madness. Is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But there is hope for whoever is joined with all the living, since a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they'll die, but the dead don't know anything. There is no longer a reward for them, because the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their envy have already disappeared and there is no longer a portion for them in all that is done under the sun. It's an evil thing. It's a tragic thing. It's a loss. It's an uh, invasion. It's an, a, a plundering. For death is judgment. Death is an alien enemy horror. It's right to grieve death. It's a right to be angry, it's right to cry, it's right to to sit in the in the it hurts. It's healthy to hurt, to feel sad and then angry and then sort of happy for a while but then bad that you're feeling happy because you should be feeling sad or angry and all of those things. Death is horrible, it's an awful thing. For we live in a world that's separated from God, spiritually dead, lives of evil and madness while we live. Verse 3 puts it. And the fruit of that sin, the thing that as you plant that sin into life and into this world, as that grows up, the fruit, the rotten, poison fruit that it bears is death. Sin is a sting. And the venom in that sting is death. Why is death so bad? Well, verse 4 says because there's no hope. It's all over. Verse 5 says there's no knowledge, there's no consciousness. Verse 5 and 6 also say there's no reward or remembrance. It's just a great denial. It's a great zero. It's a great abolition. This is primarily talking here, of course, of physical death, isn't it? Um, We live in spiritual death. We look ahead to physical death, but but beyond that physical death, there is the judgment. Ecclesiastes concludes with that affirmation that in all our lives, no, not simply we will die, but that God will bring all things into judgment, even the hidden things. How much more severe then is this warning about death? The death brings an end to all hope of, of, of life, but, but then beyond that, it brings to the end any hope of standing before the pure God, the righteous God, any hope of who can stand before him. I think C.S. Lewis is helpful to some extent in thinking about death, uh, eternal death really is, as a continuation of the first two kinds of death. It's continuing to collapse into our 
rebellion and defiance against God. It's continuing to decay for all eternity. It's a, a collapse of all that we're meant to be. Peace with God, loving him, worshipping him, serving him and ruling his world. It's instead to become almost non-things in this horror of a way. It's, it's a, all that we love, delight in and rejoice in and value and appreciate. All, all is gone. Wise ones consider these things. And we're to be wise and to minister wisely, we consider these things. We minister uh, you know, at the mouth of hell. We minister at the, the deathbed. We minister in the darkness. Come across to Psalm 90. Psalm 90 and, and Moses' psalm it picks up these themes. Just back to Psalm 90. Lord, you've been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world from eternity to eternity, you were God. You return mankind to the dust, saying, Return, descendants of Adam. For in your sight a thousand years are like yesterday that passes away, like a few hours of the night. You end their life, they sleep. They're like grass that grows in the morning. In the morning it sprouts and grows. By evening it withers and dries up. For we're consumed by your anger. We're terrified by your wrath. You have set our unjust ways before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days ebb away under your wrath. We end our years like a sigh. Our lives last 70 years, or if we're strong, 80 years, even the best of them, a struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Are you living in the light of death? Are you lost the illusion of being eternal? We'll come across to 2 Corinthians 4 and we'll finish here. 2 Corinthians 4. There is the hope, isn't there? There's the hope that uh, where we can't stand before the judgment, where we have no hope beyond this life, where we uh, are doomed to die and after death to face the judgment and none can stand there. There is the hope, and that's the great treasure of the gospel. Because the gospel is the great treasure that <laughs> takes away the sin that killed us spiritually, washes that away. It cancels the debt of death the guilt that brings to physical death and beyond the second death, the eternal death. And it actually, it's a treasure because it gives. It gives us a right standing before God, the right standing of Jesus himself. It gives us the hope that beyond death we'll rise again. 
that the wind through the bones will become the wind of the spirit, pulling the bones back together, raising them up from the grave to live forever. A treasure, isn't it? It's an amazing thought that that, that gospel is this treasure, is this, the way he puts it there in verse um, 4, he describes the spiritual death as a blindness of the mind, that the devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers so we can't see this light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And then he goes on to describe the gospel as this new creation. Verse 6, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, Genesis 1, he's saying let there be light again. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters of this dead world. And God said, let there be light in the face of Christ and the glory of God and the salvation of sinners. It's a wonderful news. But it's a grim work to know that truth and minister that in this age. And that's what he dwells on at the close of this chapter. Verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay so that this extraordinary power may be from God, not from us. We're pressured in every way but not crushed. We're perplexed but not in despair. We're persecuted but not abandoned. We're struck down but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may be also revealed in our body. For we who live are always given over to death because of Jesus so that Jesus' life may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith in accordance with what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak knowing that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. And all this is because of you, so that grace extended through more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to God's glory. Therefore, we don't give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we don't focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Do you live in the light of eternity? It's exciting, isn't it? It's tingling a little bit, the thought of that. Don't waste your life. Store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't decay with thieves, don't break in and steal. Store up this eternal weight of glory. Fix your eyes on what is unseen. Let's spend the rest of the day talking about how we're going to do that, huh? Let's pray and then we'll break for some hot drinks before Craig comes and shares with us. You're the first up, Craig, is that right? So we'll, we'll pray and then we'll just break for two minutes if you want a drink and we'll kick straight on. Loving Father. Loving Heavenly Father, you are a loving Heavenly Father, a loving creator, a stern judge, but an astonishing saviour. Thank you for the treasure of the gospel. Please teach us to be wise and to number our days. But please also show us and remind us of how great this treasure of the gospel is. And even as we persevere in sickness and depression and discouragement and hardship and persecution and cold, please may the way we persevere 
itself show the power of the resurrection. And may you use us, frail clay vessels, to do your eternal work. And may you cheer us to keep fixing our eyes on what's eternal. And we pray, we all have friends and family members, acquaintances and colleagues who are really hiding from death. And we pray that you give them the gift of being able to see, lose the illusion of being eternal, and that you give us the courage and love to be able to speak to them words of hope. In Jesus' name we pray and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.